jog, we do jumping jacks, we do squats, we do marches. We do a lot of upper body. We walk around with our arms up, we pump our arms. There are some things that just don't go together. Going to the gym, that's great. Going and admire great art, that's fantastic. But you put them together, it just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, it's like, it would be like going to a sports bar on Mother's Day. Right? None of you are doing that. And it's not like on Father's Day you go out for high tea in the afternoon or anything like that. Tea's great. Sports bar's great. But you don't do it on the wrong day. You don't do it in the wrong context. There are certain things that just don't fit well together. They don't belong together. But sometimes when you put two things that don't belong together, that's exactly when you get what you need. We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, there's all these different mashups of images and things that don't make sense. The lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion. And those aren't two different beings. That's the very character and the heart of God. And if you don't understand that God is both a lion and the lamb, you'll never understand God himself. And we're going to see today a couple of little glimpses of things that get mashed together, almost like little paradoxes, and they don't seem to go together, but somehow they do. In these series of messages on the book of Revelation, we're talking about how there are these surprising moments that there's the start that's never finished, there's the church that's never defeated, there's the song that's never silenced, and today we're talking about the battle that was never really fought. And I need to warn you in advance that today's message, we find our way into the portions of the book of Revelation where things get a little ugly. And so today I want to begin with um, just some free association. When I say the word Armageddon, turn to somebody next to you. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Turn to somebody next to you as soon as you hear the word Armageddon. I'm imagining for most of you that you hear the word Armageddon, you think of something cataclysmic, you think of something like the end of the world. If you're anything like me and you're a child of the 80s and the 90s, this is what you think of. You think of these great movies that were kind of at the end of one century, finding our way into the next millennium. It's where we kind of discovered new era of computer-generated graphics and special effects, and we could blow things up in new ways. And so, like, let's make lots of those movies. Most of our psyches were shaped even unknowingly by the history of what went before us, starting in the medieval era. Here's Albert Durer, famous woodcutting here of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And 
our imaginations have been bathed in the history of our society and particularly in Hollywood. But what's interesting to me is that if you got in a time machine and you went back to the first century, the latter part of the first century, and you walked up to somebody in that era like the beloved Apostle John and you said the word Armageddon, which in Hebrew means the mountain of Megiddo, they would not be thinking about cataclysmic movies. They wouldn't be thinking about medieval kind of grotesque imagery. They would think about this place. It's called the Jezreel Valley. This is the perspective from Nazareth. It wasn't a clear day on this particular day, but on a clear day, you could see all the way to the city of Megiddo. This is one of the most fought over and most important stretches of real estate in the history of the world. Let me see if I can explain. On Google Maps, this is what it looks like. You'll notice that there's the green for the delta of the Nile River in northern Egypt. You can see some of the green up in Turkey. And you see, even coming through Lebanon, how there's this little strip of green that comes along the side of the Mediterranean Sea. And you see a little pin placed there by Tel Megiddo, or the Mound of Megiddo in the national park that is there. In other words, this area is of incredible importance because of these dynamics here. That if you wanted to get from Europe or from Asia down into Africa, there was in essence only one way to go. This is known as the land bridge. You had the sea, which was almost impossible to navigate unless, you know, I mean, it is a people, they just didn't have large ships to transport lots of cruise members or anything along those lines. And then over to the east is an uninhabitable desert. In order to traverse this area, to go through this area, you had to have water, you had to have food, you had to have supplies. The only place where you can do this, everything funnels down geographically to get from Africa into Asia or into Europe to this narrow stretch of land that's only a handful of miles wide. And whoever controls the Jezreel Valley controls all the commerce that goes in between all of those great continents. So you can see why it was so valuable of land. In addition to that, if you were to go back in time and you were to talk to somebody who was not just from that era, but who was of the Jewish persuasion, who, whose mind had been saturated in the great stories of God's people, that there would have been two significant names that it would have immediately come to mind when you said the word Armageddon or Megiddo. It would have been Joshua and Josiah. Joshua, the battle of Megiddo was one of the last battles that took place in order to inhabit the promised land, to, to fully dwell in the promise that God had given to his people. And King Josiah was the last great king of Israel. He was killed at a battle in Megiddo when an invading army came in, and that was kind of the beginning of the end of Judah, of Israel. So it actually, at Megiddo, you can kind of think of it this way. At Armageddon, there was a battle very early on in God's people where all the promises began, and there was a battle at the end of Israel where all of the promises seemed to unravel. And so one day, God says in a vision that there's going to be a great battle, a battle to end all battles, 
And of course, the most natural place, if all the armies of the world are going to converge together in one place, where is that going to be? It's going to be at Megiddo. And if you're an Israelite, it's going to be a battle that helps you to re-inhabit the promises that God has given to you and to make sure that the dynasty of God's kingdom endures forever. And so this is not just a random place on the map. And this is not just any old war. In Revelation chapter 16, it says this, then they gathered the kings together, all the kings from all over the world, and they came to that place called Armageddon. And then over the course of the next couple of chapters, in chapters 17 and 18, you see the buildup, you see the buildup of this great battle of all the kingdoms of the world that take place, and this is how the battle happens. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A couple of days ago, I was conducting a funeral for a woman who was 93 years old, a great matriarch. And there was the son and one of his best friends from childhood there. And they were reminiscing about their memories and the times that they had together. And I asked one of them, I said, you know, how, you know, what do you remember from your childhood together? And he laughed and he said, oh, I remember the time that he and I got into a really big fight. I mean, mostly we just kind of argued a lot. But in this moment, I mean, we were just, we were about to swing and we were rolling around in the dirt and everything was kicking up. And I naturally said, you know, being the pastor that I am, I said, well, who won the fight? (laughs) And he said, nobody really won the fight because the fight never really got off the ground. I said, why didn't the fight actually happen? He said, well, his mom came out. I'm like, well, how did she stop the fight? Did she pull you apart? Did she, what, did, what did she do? And he just, he just laughed and he said, no, all she had to do was come outside. <laughs> she stood on the front porch. She said our names and that was the end of the fight. Because of who she was, because of the way that she ran that household, because what she had done for them, they knew They knew that she was in charge. This is the closest analogy that I can think of, of the battle that was never really fought in the battle of Armageddon, the battle to end all battles. The battle's never really fought because of who Jesus is, because of how he reigns, and because of what he's done. Let's talk about each of these different images and ideas together. The battle is never really fought because of who Jesus is. In the imagery of the text, Jesus is said to not only have a crown, but 
to have multiple crowns upon his head, which is kind of a strange image. I'll never forget when I got to go see the crown jewels in the Tower of London in England for the first time. I thought there was only one crown. The first time I went, I didn't realize that there were, there were a lot of crowns. And then back in ancient times, you kind of collected crowns the same way that I collect baseball hats. You had different kind of crowns for different occasions and symbolizing the different lands and areas that you were loyal to and, in their instance, in charge of. And so if you wore many crowns, you were a king of a lot of other kingdoms. When I was a boy, I grew up going to this camp in the summer. It was called Mo Ranch. This is a picture of Mo Ranch. It's nestled in the Texas Hill Country. It's located along the beautiful waters of the Guadalupe River. And, um, and one of our favorite activities down by where the slide is, I mean, I just spent hours in the water, was do you see that raft that's in the middle of the water there? We would play a modified version of King of the Hill. We would play King of the Raft. This is before lawyers ruined everything where you would push and, you know, just kind of like shove one another off of the raft. And it's why nobody over the age of 30 should be alive because we played games like this and didn't wear seatbelts and things like that when we were young. And so we're playing this game, King of the Raft, and there was this, there was this one boy who was a couple of years older than, than the rest of us were, and he was... He was bigger than I was, and he was stronger than I was, and he was faster than I was, and he was dumber than I was, and he was uglier than I was. I don't know that those last two are true. I just throw that in there in case he's listening to this sermon right now. And he was just mean. I mean, not only would he push me off the, the raft, but sometimes he would kind of hold me down underwater a little bit and then let me come up and he would cackle with like that. You know, Sid, the boy from Toy Story, he was like that kid. And um, he was just mean, but he was all those things. And, but he was the king of the raft. And there, there was this one day, never forget it. It was kind of one of the counselors, one of the youth counselors saw how mid, how kind of mean this kid was and so there was this day where he walked to the edge of the Guadalupe River and he took off his shirt and he swam out to the raft and he looked at that kid and you could tell there was about to be a new king of the raft because he pushed that kid right off the la raft and he led us on the raft and we would laugh at the Sid kid in the water. The Sid kid was the king of the raft, but there was a king of kings. There was a king above that king. And there was a real king in charge. So much of life is lived under the pecking order of who's in charge of this organization and who's in charge of that society, who's ahead of that government, who's got the most money, who's got whatever it is. We just, we're constantly playing that game of king of the raft. You can play that game if you want to. But I'm here to tell you that no matter how high you climb, there's a king above all other kings. His name is Jesus, and he has multiple crowns, and that all the kingdoms of this world are under his dominion and his rule. And so maybe we would live differently, treat one another differently, not see life as so much of a pecking order kind of game if we realize that you don't get to be the king, that there's a king above all of that. When this story takes place during kind of the height of the Roman Empire and when Caesar would walk into the imperial senate 
all of the senators would stand up and you know what they said? We have records of this historically. You are king of kings and you are Lord of lords. And in this vision of what we have in the book of Revelation, the apostle John in this vision of Jesus says, oh, you might think you're the king Caesar, but you're not really the king. There's a king of kings and he's got multiple crowns and all of the earth is at his foot. The reason that the battle to end all battles never really is fought is because Jesus shows up and because of who he is, the battle's over. But secondly, the battle's never really fought because of how he reigns because Jesus isn't like any other king. Did you notice the two adjectives that they use to describe Jesus? They say that he is faithful and true. One of the activities that I engage in as your pastor is I do premarital counseling. And premarital counseling is different from like regular marriage counseling. And regular marriage counseling, um, people want to be there. They're, they're actually coming because they need to learn something. They need to work through something. They need to process something. In premarital counseling, you're like the obstacle to them getting what they want. You're standing in their way. Um, to them getting married. And so you just need to know that at times when premarital counseling starts, it's kind of transactional, it's kind of shallow. They're not ready to go super deep or to be all that vulnerable. And I often start almost every premarital counseling appointment with the same question, why do you want to get married? It is amazing how many people have never considered that question before coming to my office. (laughs) You get kind of that blank stare of like, dude, we should have talked about this before, like, there was this one time when I asked my standard opener my question, and I was waiting for that lovely moment where I get to shame the couple into not having thought through their, um, you know, why they were actually coming, and as soon as I asked the question, the woman just, her eyes fill with tears, and they start to fall. I'm like, great, I made her cry with the first question. He's going to be mad at me now. And she says, you don't know me. You don't know my backstory. But she said, I, I grew up in this home. It was absolutely chaotic. I didn't know if there was going to be a meal or there would be food in the fridge. I didn't know if I was going to get picked up or not from school. There was alcohol, there was abuse. You couldn't count on anything in my home. But I survived and then I met this man and she no longer looked at me, she looked at him. And she said he was the first person in my life when he said something, he would actually do it. That what he said and what he did We're one and the same. So getting married to him is the easiest thing I could think of. Why wouldn't you want to marry that? He was faithful and true. He was reliable. He was genuine. 
There's a part of this portion of the text that I actually have to take issue with the NIV's translation. What we read today when we went over this is it said it like this, that Jesus will rule them with an iron scepter. And the reason that the NIV, it's understandable. This is, the book of Revelation is one of the hardest to translate and one of the trickiest in order to interpret. With all of the royal imagery, it makes sense that you would talk about this in terms of rule and you would talk about this in terms of a scepter. But most commentators, if you dig deeper and get to it, this is how it really ought to be translated. And this is very different. He will shepherd them with an iron rod. In other words, the book of Revelation here, and we get uncomfortable with this, kind of like things that don't tend to go together, that actually go together, is you're, you're mashing up the imagery of Jesus being the king of kings, and at the same time, you are also mashing up that the way that he reigns is with this kind of instrument. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, but it's the instrument of a shepherd, and yet the instrument of a shepherd that's made out of iron. In other words, it's eternal. It's going to last that his reign is also the same thing as his shepherd's care. So it's not just about his power and his might. It's also about the way that he cares for us. Do you see the mashup of these two things that don't normally go together, that the shepherd is the king and the king is the shepherd in the same way that the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion? And you'll never understand God unless you understand that these two things actually go together. They're one and the same. And so the battle of Armageddon doesn't ever really happen because of who Jesus is and because of how he reigns and also because of what he's done. Typically, being a teenager is the apex of self-absorption and self-delusion and narcissism, and that was certainly true for your pastor. And I remember being a teenager when I learned the story that my mom had to stay in bed that she was bedridden for multiple months in order to give birth to me safely. It's proof that I was a pain in the back before I even came into this world. But it's also proof that before I was even born, I was clothed in self-sacrificial love. Revelation puts it this way. Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God, and the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Jesus shows up for the battle of Armageddon wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. And you're like, wait, the battle hasn't even started yet. How is it that he has blood on his robe? It's because it's not the blood of battle. It is the blood of his own self-sacrifice when he went to the cross. Jesus shows up to fight, and he's already done something before he even gets to this fight. And that is, is that he has died so that we might be forgiven and that we might be freed. The reason that the battle is never fought because he's already paid for the cost with his own life. 
he shows up in clothes saturated in his sacrificial love. And behind him is an army. It's the army of all of the agents of light against all of the different powers and principalities and the kingdoms of this world, everything that stands in contrast. Jesus has an army, but did you notice that that army is dressed in white linen? Jesus has an army, and they're not even dressed for battle. The great invitation that Jesus gives to us as we draw near to the end of the book of Revelation is that there is this incredible wedding feast that takes place. Jesus' army isn't even dressed for battle. They are dressed for a wedding feast. What happens in verse 9, right before this passage, it says this. It says, Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then as soon as this passage is over, right after the segment that we read, and this is where things get a little kind of ugly here, it says this, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice, and all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Happy Mother's Day brunch, everybody. (laughs) You actually see this contrast at the end of the musical and the book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. There's two contrasting feasts at the end. There's the feast of the great wedding, and there is also the feast of those who prey upon the soldiers who have died in the French Revolution. Book of Revelation, Victor Hugo, all making the same point. Here's the point. You are either a guest at the great wedding feast in the kingdom of God, or you are a scavenger. And which are you going to be? A friend of mine and colleague was so excited that his daughter was going to get married. All the build-up after the engagement, all the preparations, all the plans. And the fiancé was coming down from Canada. And he was supposed to come down on Monday, but he didn't come down on Monday. Some business stuff came up, he said. And on Tuesday, he couldn't come down. And Wednesday, and finally got to the day of the rehearsal dinner. And he admitted that he wasn't coming at all. What would you do if the day before your wedding you found out that the one who had promised himself to you wasn't going wasn't to marry you after all? Family huddled together and they said, you know what? We're going to have the party anyway. So imagine the courage that it took them to say, don't send any of the gifts, but please still come. And the courage of that bride 
at what was supposed to be her wedding, to take the microphone at what was supposed to be her reception, and to look at all the family and the friends that had come and traveled and said, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for your support, for your prayers. Thank you for loving me and my family. This was always bigger in this love than about between two people. You've given me hope. This isn't what I expected, she said. I never expected to be going on my honeymoon or what was supposed to be my honeymoon with my older sister who was six months pregnant on a cruise. (laughs) And then she said this. She said, thank you for coming because it was all paid for anyway. That's it. That's the invitation. There is a great feast going on in the kingdom of heaven and it's been paid for with his blood and it heals and it redeems all the brokenness of all that is shattered, of all the failed coups and battles. It is the battle to end all battles. But then again, Somehow it's not really a battle after all. Because all he does is show up. And then it's over. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the great price that you have paid, the great sacrifice that you have given. Thank you for inviting us to be honored guests and forgive us for the times when we would prefer to be a scavenger. You are the king of kings, your strength. You're not just the king of the raft, you're the king of all of life. But you also care. You are faithful and true. You are both shepherd and king. And in this moment, we pause to know that amidst all of the battles in our lives, the one thing we can count on is that one day you're going to show up. And the promise will be completed. And the legacy and the dynasty of your kingdom and your love and your reign will continue forever. Heavenly Father, there are things in this world that don't seem to go together. The lion is the lamb. The shepherd is the king. Help us to have that stereoscopic vision to see your glory the vision of your love. I pray for anybody now, God, who wants to become a guest, who wants to receive the white linen robes of what it means to be a part of your army that's not really an army. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.